0: Turn in your Bibles again to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, Nehemiah chapter 4, we'll look at verses 1 to 9 uh, this morning. You know, dreaming it and doing it are two different things. We all have dreams of greatness, but few achieve it because the steps are difficult. We may dream of doing great things for God, a life of radical discipleship, a family known for its commitment to the Lord, service that makes a difference in the kingdom of God. But doing all that is quite a different thing. It is hard, it is painful, it is wearisome, and often seems unrewarding. Dreaming it and doing it are quite different things. Nehemiah had a great dream to rebuild the city of God, to repair the walls of Jerusalem, which had lain in ruin for a century and a half. And the people had come to share his vision and join him in the task. But in our text today, we see that doing it would prove to be much more difficult. This is a lengthy chapter, so I'm only going to take the first nine verses this week, and we'll get back to the rest of it next time. Let me read verses one Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night, to meet this threat. The two simple truths, I think, that this uh, passage suggests to us. The first is this. Expect opposition. Expect opposition. Back in chapter 2, Nehemiah realized that God's work might prove unpopular. Well, now that the building project is underway, uh, uh, there's no question about how it's going to be received. In verse 1 we read that Sanballat became angry and was greatly incensed. Sanballat didn't just feel angry in his heart. Verses 1 to 3 describe the open opposition to Nehemiah and the Jews that he had. He attacked them personally. He ridiculed and publicly humiliated them in front of officials and the army, calling them these Feeble Jews, literally those miserable Jews. Seems like an implied threat, does it not? When public officials uh, and army troops openly mock you. Then he attacked their faith. Will they offer sacrifices? He seems to be saying, do they think they can pray these walls up? He went on to attack their judgment. Will they finish in a day? Can they bring these stones back to life? In other words, they don't seem to know what they're in for. They don't even know that those building materials are unsalvageable. He accused them of not knowing what they're doing. Finally, Sanballat's friend Tobias summed it all up in his taunt of verse 3. This wall supposedly being built to keep armies out will crumble under the weight of a single fox. Surely Nehemiah realized by then he needed to expect opposition. And folks, you, you and I... Can expect the same kind of opposition. You begin to live for the Lord and serve him with your whole heart, and you will be ridiculed with taunts that are more than just jesting. They will come to you in the same forms, unfair personal attacks, public humiliation and ridicule, attacks on the rationality of your faith, attacks on your good judgment, and taunts that dismiss everything you stand for as a joke we're no different from Nehemiah. We should expect opposition. But it didn't stop there. Nehemiah's opposition increased even more. When the progress became visible, when the walls were finished about halfway up, and the gaps were being filled in, one might think that the opponents would then concede that they were wrong. Maybe this is a good thing. Maybe they really are going to pull this off. Maybe this is not just a joke no, no. That was not the response. According to verse 7 and 8, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. So now the opposition had increased in magnitude. What used to be Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem... Now included the Arabs and the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod. These are Jerusalem's neighbors to the north and the east and the west and the south. It's being made crystal clear to Nehemiah, you are totally surrounded by people who disagree with you. You have no friends in this matter. You are alone in your plans. The opposition also increased in intensity. They had been angry. Now they're very angry. So they plotted how to act out their opposition. They made plans to stir up trouble and to fight against these builders of Jerusalem. Expect opposition to increase. Now Nehemiah may have been surprised at the trouble he faced, but he doesn't seem to have been, and neither should we. This is how our Savior was treated, remember? Remember? A few excerpts of Matthew 27. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and wove a crown of thorns and sat on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. Those who passed by hold insults, insults at him, shaking their head and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are, if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priest and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now, come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Amazing how similar the opposition sounds, isn't it? Ridicule, taunts, threats. But this wasn't just Nehemiah's experience, nor was it just Christ's experience, This is what we have been told to expect. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus also warned, If you belong to the world, it would love you like its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The servant is not greater than his master." If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul understood this as he wrote to young Timothy. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Apostle Peter said the same thing. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, you and I need to expect opposition which keeps on increasing. I'm not trying to discourage you, just quite the opposite. I want to encourage you that the opposition which seems so threatening is not unusual. It's no reason to quit. It's what we should expect. So for example... If we are really determined to be a church which is true to God's word, we can expect we're going to get ridiculed sometimes. Oh, those Bible-thumping fundamentalists. Those radical right-wing nuts. Our validity may be called into question. We could someday lose our tax-exempt status because we're not politically correct enough. We will be scorned as out of touch and irrelevant from people both inside and outside the Christian community. We must expect opposition. Or on another level, if you're committed to raising a godly family family according to biblical principles, you may find that you're not applauded, but you're mocked and sneered at. You may have your intelligence called into question. You may have your love for your children and your fitness to be parents questioned, especially if you discipline and train your children, as the Bible tells you. It could get so hostile that authorities someday threaten to take your children away from you. One way or another, you can expect opposition. The same is true on a very personal level. As you grow in your faith, as you grow bolder about applying God's word to your life and to your work, as as you increasingly refuse to compromise your integrity because it has to do with your relationship to Christ, as you even begin to share your faith, don't expect everyone to applaud. Some will question whether you're any longer fit for your job, whether you really do things right, whether you can be trusted, whether you might be some kind of kook. Many will consider even your increased integrity to be driven by some sinister religious fanaticism. Don't be surprised. Expect opposition. In our lifetime, we American Christians have enjoyed great times of peace. Thing, something unusual in the history of the church, frankly. But we're still warned by both the scripture and by history that sometimes things will be much worse than this sometimes people will be declared the en- god's people will be declared the enemies of society sometimes we may be officially banned even persecuted to death so what should we do in such a day when the illusion of success and popularity is shattered now what how should we face an onslaught of opposition Well, that brings us to the second lesson of this text. When opposed, pray and persist. When opposed, pray and persist. Now, that's probably not the first thing that comes to your mind when you face opposition. For some opposition will present a crisis of faith, which tempts them to just run away from the Savior. But as Peter said, when asked if he too would abandon Jesus in some hard times, he said, where shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. And folks, it's still true. There's nowhere to go. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved but the Lord Jesus. For others, the first response is just to back off and be silent about our faith, to maintain a low profile, be careful not to make waves, And that works a little sometimes. But Jesus warns us, those who deny me before men, I will deny before my Father. We can't go too far down that road. Others will be tempted to respond to opposition in a way described by the motto of a military unit that I once knew. Strike hard, strike fast, strike first. Fight back, in other words. But in James, the scripture warns us that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if if we reject our automatic responses to opposition, to flee, to hide, to fight, then what should we do? Well, Nehemiah's example gives us a, a, a plan. When opposed, pray and persist. So first we see Nehemiah praying. Responding to the opposition by taking it to the Lord. We read it in verse 4. Hear us, O our God, for we're despised. Again in verse 9, we prayed to our God. And we really shouldn't be surprised when we hear Nehemiah praying, for he prayed about everything from the beginning of this book. What may surprise us is what he prays. In verses 4 and 5. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the the builders. This sounds like those cries for vengeance in the imprecatory psalms. As Christians, what do we make of this? Well, this is a plea for justice and righteousness. Here Nehemiah aligns himself with God and his cause which means that those who oppose that cause are God's enemies, not his. He prays for justice to come, for God to be victorious, for God's name to be vindicated. He doesn't set out to destroy his mockers. He hands them over to God for God to deal with. We should have the same righteous indignation when the cause of Christ is maligned or mocked or oppressed. But this righteous anger first moves us to pray. Before Nehemiah ever said a word to his critics, he prayed. He refused to retaliate, though others might have encouraged him to do so. When opposed, he persisted first in prayer. I tell you this morning, God still says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You don't have to make everything right. You don't have to be vindicated. You don't have to win all the battles with your critics. God is able to defend his own name. You just commit your adversary to the Lord God and trust him to set the record straight. As a song by the old Christian rock group Petra once said, get on your knees and fight like a man. But you see, we're, in, we're even better equipped to do that than Nehemiah was. Nehemiah knew only the desire for the vindication of God's righteousness, for justice on God's enemies. But we know Jesus. We've seen the cross. We understand that God's justice has been satisfied, and that in his grace he's now taking his worst enemies and making them his servants, indeed his own children. So we who know the gospel can and must go far beyond Nehemiah, we're called to pray for our enemies. To bless those who persecute us, knowing that of such unworthy opponents, God is building a kingdom of grace. Stephen knew that, and as they stoned him to death for his faith, he prayed for those who were killing him. and God answered that prayer for standing right over here uh, proving of the whole thing was a man named Saul of Tarsus God sees the heart of that man. And that Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all times. You see, it's still true. in even a fuller sense than Nehemiah knew, when opposed, we first pray. But Nehemiah does not have his head in the clouds, and neither should we. His praying is not a substitute for action. It's only the first and most important action. He also persisted, in the work. We see it in verse 9, 6, and again in verse 9. So we rebuilt the temple till all of it reached half, half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. In verse 9, we prayed to our God and posted a guard and day, day and night to meet this threat. You see, no matter what, they didn't quit. They kept building what they had set out to build. Chuck Swindoll writes, Nothing excites Satan or the critics more than for his negativism to result in a slowdown of progress. The easiest thing to do when one is criticized is to give up and quit. Nehemiah said, Stay the task, don't give up, keep building. You could hear the workmen night and day splashing the mortar, putting the stones in place. Nehemiah heard the opposition, he analyzed it, he prayed about it, he took action. He says, let's set a guard, and uh, we'll keep working. We'll keep working. Day and night, they kept working. You see, the worst possible response to opposition is to quit. To back off. In a war, when enemy aircraft approach, carrying bombs to drop on your homeland, You know, those who go out to intercept them, they don't have to shoot them down to win the battle. If you can cause them to jettison their armament to engage you, you've won. They abandon their mission. The same is true for us. If criticism causes us to quit, it's been effective, even if it's all wrong. Even if we're fighting against the criticism with all our might, it's already won if we quit. Because we've not persisted in the will of God. When we stop to fight, we abandon our mission. So we need to learn that when opposed, we pray, yes, but we must also persist. You people, sometimes we're so eager to fight over anything. But though we're to be fearless, we're not to be fighters. Instead, we're to be quick to persist in doing the work. A great example of this is Paul's instruction to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Do you hear the persistence there? When people oppose your teaching, when people set themselves against you, what are you supposed to do? Don't quarrel with them. Keep on gently instructing them that God might turn them away from the bondage to the evil one. So what does it matter? What people have to say about your Christianity. You expect ridicule, don't you? So pray and keep living it out. What does it matter? What people think of your family's priorities? You have nothing to prove to the critics. Commit them to God and stay the course. Give yourself to a godly marriage. To the training of your children in the faith. To the building of a home that mirrors the perfection of Christ. And in this church, what does it matter what people think of us? If we're doing what God commands, we must not change. If we're not, we must do something. But above all, we must persist as long as God enables us to persist in what he's given us to do. When opposed Pray and persist. Dreaming it and doing it are quite different things. This morning we're we're warned of the reality of increasing opposition to the cause of Christ. And we're called to prayerful persistence in our labors for the city of God. Our perspective should be that described by President Theodore Roosevelt back in 1910 in his famous Citizen in a Republic speech. You've all heard this, but it's a great, uh, it's a great uh, thing to think about, our attitude. He says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is no effort without erring and shortcoming, who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spins himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor souls who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. That's what we learn from this text concerning the Christian life. Expect Opposition, it will always be there. It will sometimes increase to a crisis level. Don't be surprised. But in the face of it, pray and persist in doing the will of our God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're soft, for we've not known much opposition in our day. Few of us have suffered for our faith. The worst we've endured is a little ridicule or mocking. Or perhaps a promotion we didn't get. Or any lying around us. Father, we know nothing of the opposition that so many of our Christian brothers and sisters have faced and faced today around the world. So, Father, may we learn from Nehemiah and learn from what you say in all of the scriptures and what you tell us yourself, Lord Jesus, that the opposition is going to be there, whether subtle or explicit and outrageous. And we need to expect it. But, Lord, help us to know how to respond, not as our fleshly responses would dictate but as you have told us to bring it to you to lay it under, at your feet it, beyond that to pray for our enemies and bless them knowing that you have the power to change them into the children of God and then to persist to not quit to not give up to not become discouraged but to continue to do what you set before us to do as long as you give us opportunity and energy to do so. Oh God, help us to be faithful, we pray. Amen.